Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about our stories and about science, the good, bad, and the stubborn. I've been thinking about misconceptions and misperceptions, and about structures of thought and the fortresses we create to protect them, complete with moats and armed guards. I've been thinking about how difficult it is to dismantle and shed those belief systems that we've adopted to protect ourselves long ago when there weren't many options, even when they no longer serve us and are seriously doing us harm. My guest today is Johan Hari. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. His most recent book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Welcome, Johan, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really glad to be with you, Ellie. Thanks very much. So um, first off, I just want to say, and I don't think I've ever said this in an interview, and especially not at the beginning, but I just love and loved your book. Um, and I just want to say kudos and congratulations and give you a big applaud. Oh, thank you very much. I hope every interview I do starts like this. <laughs> um, and I want to also, with our, our conversation, we're going to go a lot of places and we're going to go deep, but I want to start with your motivation for, it was funny because you talk about one of the doctors, you call him Sherlock Holmes, and I was like, oh, no, 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 Johan, you're the Sherlock Holmes here. Um, <laughs> so you, with Chasing the Scream, you set out to help the people in your lives who are suffering from addiction. And it seemed like in Lost Connections, you went one step deeper, like this search was a little bit even more intimate. And it was to help the, yourself with, with a, an area in your life that you had been suffering with. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. There, there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me and I wanted to find the answer to, but I was also afraid to look into, frankly. And I put it off for a long time. I ended up going on this three-year journey for this book. So the, the first mystery was, why was I still depressed? You know, I'd gone to the doctor when I was a teenager and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. And the doctor... My doctor told me a story that lots of people were being told in the 90s. People are still being told now, which is you're depressed and you're depressed for a straightforward reason that there's this chemical called serotonin that some people are not. It makes people feel good and some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. Um, and and so we're going to give you this this drug that's going to boost your serotonin levels and you're going to feel better. And I was thrilled to be told this, to be given a story for my distress. I started taking the drug and I did feel significantly better for a couple of months. Then I went back to my doctor and explained that I was really feeling this, this pain leaking back through again. And he said, well, clearly we didn't give you a big enough dose. So he gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt a brief period of relief. Then the pain came back and I was in this pattern where I was given a higher and higher dose until eventually I was taking the maximum dose, which I did for, for virtually all of my adult life until I was in my early thirties. Um, so I didn't understand why at the end of that I was still depressed since I was doing everything I was told to do. The, the, the second mystery was an even bigger one, which is why were there so many other people like me? When I was a kid, we'd had some people in my family who'd taken, um, you know, uh, psychiatric meds. And uh, I, at the time, I'd known my family was very unusual. I would stay with other kids. I wouldn't see that. And a weird thing happened as I got older, which is the whole of Western civilization caught up with my family, right? Now, one in five Americans is taking a psychiatric drug at any given time. One in three middle-aged women is taking an antidepressant at any given time. We're now so awash in these drugs that even if you're one of the listeners who isn't taking one of these drugs, you are ingesting them because the when they test the water supply, they, they find trace elements because so many of us are taking them and, and urinating them out. We are, we are literally awash in these drugs. But the deeper question is why are so many of our, our fellow citizens in, in your country, my country, um, finding it, so impossible to get through the day without without drugging and anesthetizing themselves what is the cause of this deep well of of distress and so i began to to really go on a journey to understand this and i ended up traveling over 40,000 miles speaking to the best scientists in the world on these questions but also speaking to people who just had radically different perspectives from a an amish village in indiana where they have exceptionally low depression to a brazilian city where they banned advertising to see if it would improve people's mental health to uh, a housing project in berlin where they'd found this extraordinary way to overcome depression to a lab in in baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would help them with their with their depression i think the main thing i learned is 
almost everything we think we know about this subject that we've been told about depression and anxiety is wrong. They are not the result of chemical imbalances in our brain. There's no evidence for that. They are largely, not entirely, but largely the result of specific changes in the way we're living. That, and I identify seven causes of depression and anxiety in the way we're living, and then two biological causes of depression and anxiety. And then I really went on a journey to think, well, to look at, well, once you understand what's really causing depression and anxiety, does a different kind of antidepressant become become visible? And I began to see real solutions to these these problems. Okay, so I'm already thinking like a million things. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I did as I read the book, because there are so many just huge flags that just snap up as you read through. Um, the first one being, I want to start with is just your experience as a kid being told by the doctor, like on one hand, oh, there's just something wrong with you. And we have a pill that can fix it. Oh, great. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, I'm disconnected to my body. I can't trust my body. My body's something's wrong with it. And it's doing this thing to me. And the only solution is outside of myself. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. And one of the people who really helped me to understand where I'd gone wrong and how shocking it is that my doctor, no doctor ever said to me in the 13 years I was prescribed these powerful drugs, is there any reason you might be feeling this way? Has anything happened to you? No one ever, literally never once was I asked that. Um, and the person, one of the people who helped me to really understand what, what's going on here, who really broke part of the ice for me in seeing a way through this, is an extraordinary doctor called Joanna, Joanne Cassiatore. She's in she's based in Arizona. And Joanne actually came to her insights through a, a, for a personal reason. Her Tragically, her daughter Cheyenne died during childbirth. And Joanne um, noticed this thing that really disturbed her, which is that a lot of parents in that situation are immediately offered drugs. Um, you know, they're, they're grieving, they're in great distress. They're immediately, um, in lots of cases, prescribed antidepressants, antipsychotics even. Um, and she thought something wrong with this, and she became really a kind of expert in this, this, this one aspect of this debate, which which really helped me. So, in the 1970s, this curious thing was discovered about depression, and it was such an inconvenient fact that it was just kind of brushed under the carpet for many years, where it, where it still remains to a large degree. So, at that point, psychiatrists had decided to, for the first time, lay out the symptoms of depression. So that psychiatrists and, and general practitioners across the U.S. could standardize how they diagnose depression, which is a good thing to do. So what they did is they uh, laid out 10 symptoms and they were kind of obvious things like persistent low mood, feelings of worthlessness, that kind of thing. And they said to the psychiatrist, they laid this out in the psychiatric Bible. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and which goes to all doctors and it said, if, if your patient shows six of these 10 symptoms for more than a few weeks, then you should diagnose them with depression and give them drugs uh, if, if you think that's appropriate. And so this guidance goes out to doctors all across the United States. But after a while, these doctors started to come back and, and say, well, you know, there's a bit of a problem with this. If we use these guidelines, every grieving person should be diagnosed as mentally ill and given drugs. Because every grieving person shows six of these ten symptoms, are we meant to just be grieving all depressed, uh, to, to be drugging all depressed, all all um, grieving people? And so these psychiatrists met again, and they realised, well, there's a bit of a problem here. So what they did is they created a loophole. It was called the grief exception. And what they said is, if someone has lost somebody they love in the past year, then none of this counts. Don't diagnose them as depressed. They're just grieving, right? Which seemed like a good solution, but it. But what happened is, as the years went on, psychiatrists became conscious, a lot of good psychiatrists became conscious of a really uncomfortable tension. So on the one hand, they were being told, depression is just a spontaneous problem with your brain chemistry. And on the other hand, they were being told, there's one situation in life, but only one situation where it's not a spontaneous problem with your brain chemistry, where actually it's the result of something that's happened to you in your life. And this begged the question, why is losing someone you love the only circumstance in which these symptoms are an understandable, natural response. Why not if you've lost your job? Why not if you've lost your home? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years? 
Why is there only one piece of context that counts? And this stirred a really difficult debate for psychiatrists, because what it meant is you had to see depression not as a spontaneous problem in your brain, but as a response to life. And people like Joanne Cassiatore, the woman I was talking about, the wonderful doctor who lost her own daughter, was asking these difficult questions. So what happened is the psychiatrist just reduced this grief exception. So it was initially a year. They took it down to six months. They took it down to three months. Now they've just got rid of it. There is no grief exception anymore. So today, if you're, God forbid, your child died at 10 a.m. this morning, at 10.01 a.m., if you're showing these six of these 10 symptoms, you can be diagnosed as mentally ill at and drugs. And I think we all instinctively know there's something wrong with that. Because what it does is it disregards the sources of people's pain. It, it tells people that a pain that is caused by the world, that is natural, that is totally understandable, is a pathology that needs to be kind of uh, drugged away. And that's a real misunderstanding. And that, that really made me think, well, do we need to think differently about depression and anxiety? Now, if someone we love dies, tragically, there's we can love and hold each other and we can value each other and we can offer each other comfort, but there's nothing we can do to solve that because the, the, the person who has died is gone. But, but with depression, I began to think that depression is in a way grief for our own needs not being met. And there's something we can do about that. I can talk a bit more about that if you like. Well, I, I, I do, and I also want to just talk a little bit about um, Joanne's work in that they kind of, the the community, the medical community came to the decision that the model is to be preserved at all costs, that that is the priority. The, and, and that's where like the ug factor, which I'm just like, ah, you know, throughout your book, because there are so many moments where that is where the decision ends is that preservation of the model and you even had that a little bit with your experience you talk about at the beginning of the book and in your journey about really wanting to hold on to your story and sort of getting angry at some of these doctors and some of the evidence that they provided that maybe your story that you had been relying on wasn't correct and so that's a real phenomenon and it, it's reflected back to us and we reflect it back out there and so maybe we could talk a little bit about how that was happening in the world of um, antidepressants in that, and this is, again, it's one of those facts because two things happen here, I think, throughout the story, is there's these moments where you think, oh, that can't be true, right? Because it too, mm -hmm. is in too much opposition to our other beliefs, or it, it makes us have to dismantle all the entire structure of how we think about things. So we want to just disregard it, even though it is blatantly true. And then this other factor where, well, it's too inconvenient. So even if we believe it, as they did with the the um, DSM and the grief exception, it was too inconvenient. And so let's talk a little bit about the medical industry and the fact that this, you know, you had your story, you were being told this story, you kind of liked this story, it made sense, it was guiding you through life, you kind of fought for it. Um, and so did the medical community, even after a decade knowing that it was not true, where evidence had shown it was not true. This might sound crazy, but you mentioned that the previous book that I wrote was about the war on drugs. And I actually put off writing this book about depression to do this book about the war on drugs. And this will sound ludicrous, but I, I genuinely found it easier to go and sit with hitmen from the Mexican drug cartels than I did to reassess my story about my own depression. And I think that's partly because if you have felt great pain, and if you have a story about that pain, that feels like it it structures the pain in some way, like it gives you some kind of a leash on which to put the pain. And if that story is threatened or taken away from you, until you have a new story, you feel extraordinarily vulnerable. It feels like you've let a beast off the leash and it can, it can just savage you. If you don't understand why you feel the way you feel, even a bad story is better than, than no story. So I think that's, that, that was true for me. I think it's been true of a lot, a lot of people. I also think there were you know, let's be clear, huge financial interests in promoting this story that that it was just a brain disease. Now, this is not to say there is no value in chemical antidepressants. There is some limited value in them and some people who do get relief. But the one of the things that most shocked me, I thought I was really weird for taking antidepressants, chemical antidepressants and still being depressed. Actually, when I looked at the, the best scientific evidence, I was completely normal. Between 65 and 80% of people who take chemical antidepressants are depressed again within a year. Now, it's important to say that's not 100%. That's not nobody who's getting any help. 
anything that gives anybody some relief deserves to be out there and to be valued. But we can't continue with this being the one thing on the menu that everyone is offered when it doesn't work for most people and when there are actually better solutions out there. And, <clears throat> and one of the reasons it doesn't work is because it's based on the wrong story. So one of the things that really astonished me was speaking to experts on this and being and them explaining to me what well, as one as one um, one of the leading experts in Britain, Dr. David Healy, said to me, you can't even say that the story that depression is caused by low serotonin was discredited because in a way it was never credited. There was never a time when you would have had half of the scientists in the field believing that. It was effectively promoted by the drug company PRs to, um, you know, because it, it's a good story, because it sells, right? And this is an enormous $10 billion $10 billion industry, um, which which was really specifically uh, and deliberately mismarketed. And we now know that for a fact. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, we all know with if you think about something like, you know, when you take selfies, you know, you take 30 selfies, you throw away the 29 where you, you know, in my case, look double chinned. And then you, you keep the one and you use that for your Tinder profile or whatever. Um, in the, a very similar thing happened with the research into antidepressants. What happened is the, the drug companies were commissioned huge numbers of studies, they would discard all the studies that showed mixed or poor results, and they would only publish the one that looked good. So there was, for example, one study where they studied, I think it was 247 people, and they published the results for 27 of them who happened to be the 27 where it worked. So what happened is when you look at the real evidence, which was hidden from us for a very long time, but now has been got through freedom of information requests and various other things, these drugs have a limited effect, right? They don't have no value, but they have a very limited effect. And we need to think very differently about the idea of antidepressants. And, and one of the people who most helped me to think about it differently was this fascinating South African psychiatrist called Derek Sommerfeld. So Derek was in, um, in the early part of this century, Derek was in Cambodia when uh, chemical antidepressants first started being marketed in Cambodia. And he was explaining to these Cambodian doctors who didn't understand what they were, what, how, what antidepressants were. And uh, they said to him, oh, we don't need those drugs. We've actually already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? And he was sure they were going to talk about, you know, um, some herbal remedy or something. And they said, oh, well, we'll give you an example. They described a farmer who'd worked in the rice fields. Uh, and one day he had got, he'd stood on a landmine left by the uh, US war and he'd had his leg blown off. And they'd fitted him with an artificial limb and he was back in the fields, but it's very painful to work in the fields when you've got an artificial limb. And I can imagine it was pretty traumatic because he'd been blown up there. So what happened is he would just cry all day. He was very distressed, didn't want to get out of bed. And they said to Derek, that's depression, isn't it? And he said, yeah. And they said, right, we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what did you do? And they said, we went and sat with him. We listened to his problems. We realized why he was distressed. It was because he was in physical pain because he was having to work in this field where he'd been blown up. And we figured if we bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer, and then these causes of depression would go away. So we bought him a cow, and he became a dairy farmer. And after a few weeks, he stopped crying, and now he's fine. So you see, doctor, they said to Derek, that cow was an antidepressant. Now, if you've been raised with the theory of depression that we've been told, that it's caused by some spontaneous imbalance in your brains, which mysteriously has massively increased in the last 20 years, um, that makes absolutely no sense. If you think about depression in a different way, it makes perfect sense. What those Cambodians, Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is that depression is largely a response to the way you live and to things going wrong in your life. And the solution is to help people change their lives, to strip out those causes of depression. And this was one of the things that really united. So as you know, I went to so many different countries. You know, I spoke to people from San Francisco to Sao Paulo, from Berlin to Buenos Aires. And in all the emerging science about depression and anxiety and all the people thinking differently, one of the things that was most clear to me, the thing that united it is we, we all know that human beings have innate physical needs, right? You need warmth, you need shelter, you need water. And in the same way, there's very good evidence that we have innate psychological needs, that we need to feel we belong. We need to feel we're valued. We need to feel people see us. We need to feel we have meaning and purpose in our lives. And there's very good evidence that our culture, which is very good at many things, is getting less and less good at meeting people's basic psychological needs. And this is the reason 
why we have such a spiraling depression, anxiety and addiction crisis. And if we want to really deal with that, we have to deal with those deep unmet psychological needs. If you're listening to this and you're depressed and anxious, you are not a machine with a broken part. You are a human being with unmet needs. And that suggests a very different kind of solution. I love that you told your your younger self that at the end of the book, you you write to your younger self and say, what would I have told myself? And, and so on your journey, when you thought, okay, there are mysteries here, so I'm going to go out, I'm going to talk to these people. And I, I also am wondering how you found the most amazing people to talk to across the world. Um, but then set out to talk to him. What was the point where you felt like you made a shift, where you were willing to let go of the story, and you were also willing to start feeling what was really there? Because that's a brave and difficult thing to do. It was, it was when I started looking at very specific causes of depression and anxiety and I could see how they played out in people that I knew. So some of the ones that actually helped me through were not ones that applied to me. So in, as I say in the book, I give seven uh, causes of depression, anxiety all around us, and then two biological ones. I'll give an example I think a lot of your listeners could, could relate to, um, which is the evidence that the way most of us are working today is causing depression and anxiety. So there was this study by Gallup, the opinion poll organization, that looked at people's attitudes to their work. And what it found is 13, 1, 3% of us like our work, we enjoy it, we get energy from it. 63% of us are what they called sleepwalking through their work. So they don't like it, they don't hate it, they're just kind of enduring it. And 24% are what they call, uh, uh, said they hated their jobs, they dreaded it, they feared it, it made them feel awful. Um, so, I mean, just think about that striking. That is, that's oh, 80. Yeah, no, that was another UG moment. I'm just like, ah, oh, definitely. 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time, right? This thing that mo- I think the out- figure is that the average person checks their first work email at 7.43 a.m. and leaves work at 7.15 a.m. So this is most of our lives, right? And I began to think about a lot of the people I know who've got depression and anxiety and how much of the depression, anxiety, and anxiety focus around their work. And I began to think, well, could there be some connection here? So I started to do a lot of digging. And I discovered there was, in fact, an incredible Australian scientist who had actually discovered the discovered the answer. It's a man called Michael Marmot. And, and he had done this, this really interesting study. When he actually did it, um, at the time, he actually discovered it slightly from a right angle. And at the time, when he announced what he was going to do, people said, oh, this is so stupid. You don't even need to do a study for this. The answer is obvious. He wanted to figure out who in an organization is most likely to have a stress-related heart attack. Is it the boss at the top? Is it someone in the middle? Is it someone at the bottom? And so he started to research, did the research in London, um, in the British civil service, which is the kind of bureaucracy that runs the British state, basically. And there were 19 layers from the big boss at the top down to the, this was the 70s, so they were women, unfortunately, women in the typing pool. And he studied every layer and he spent two years researching this. And what he discovered was the exact opposite of what everyone expected. What he found is the person most likely to have a heart attack was the person at the bottom. And actually every level up you went, you were less likely to have a stress-related heart attack. And this is when he noticed the same thing was true of depression. The lower you went, the more likely you were to, to, to become depressed. And he's thinking, well, what's going on here? So what he started to do was study people who worked at the same level, but whose jobs differed in some way to say, well, will the difference in those jobs tell us what's really going on? And that's when he discovered the key to causing depression at work. There are several factors, but the biggest one is if you have no sense of control over your work. If you feel human beings have an innate need to have meaning and purpose in what we're doing, and if you feel there's no meaning and purpose to what you do, you can't infuse it with meaning because you have no control. It's just this thing that's handed down to you, you've just got to do and endure. You are far more likely to become depressed and anxious. And when I learned about that, and and the really strong evidence of it, I began to think, well, okay, how can we apply the lesson of the cow, right? What's the way to solve that? And remember, it's not work that makes people depressed. It's a lack of control over their work. So I began to look at different places. And there's this this extraordinary group of people in Baltimore who really helped me to see the way out of this. So a woman called Meredith Keogh used to go to bed every Sunday night, just kind of thrumming with anxiety about the week ahead. She had an office job, wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or anything like that. But she just felt this tremendous sense of anxiety and she couldn't believe that her life was going to be like this for the next 40 years, just stretching out ahead of her. So one day 
with our husband Josh, they quit their jobs and they decided to do something bold. So Josh had worked in bike stores in Baltimore since he was a teenager. And working in a bike store is, you know, pretty insecure work. You're, you know, you're controlled. You've got to do what the boss tells you to. It's not very well paid. You know, it's a bit, all, all sorts of aspects of it are kind of depressing. And one day Josh and his friends and Meredith had kind of said, well, what does the boss actually do? Right. We, we fix all the bikes. Right. So they decided to set up a bike store, but they decided to, to, to run it on a different principle. So they didn't want anyone to be the boss. They decided that they were going to run it as it was called a democratic cooperative. So they would take all the decisions together. They would vote on the big decisions. They would share out the good jobs and the bad jobs. They would um, share the profits. And so I went to go and visit them. It's called Baltimore Bicycle Works. It's a very thriving business in downtown Baltimore. And one of the things that was so interesting to me is when I spoke to them is how many of them had experienced depression and anxiety in this old way of working. And all of them said that sense of depression and anxiety had gone away. It's not that they, you know, their lives weren't perfect, but they, that feeling of gnawing depression and anxiety had gone away. And to me, that was so important because it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes to go and like be, you know, surf instructors in the Florida Keys, right? They fixed bikes before they fixed bikes now. What they changed was the factors that caused depression. They gave themselves control over their work and autonomy over their work. And that meant that because it was theirs, because they controlled it, they had a sense of meaning and purpose from it. And that dealt with that deep sense of depression and anxiety. So I think it was about learning about these specific things where I could, once you know something like that and you know the science and you see the people you love, you, 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 it's hard to unsee it. You know, it's like those, uh, what are they called? Those pictures where you have to, uh, adjust magic eye pictures where you have to adjust your vision and once you adjust your vision you can see once you can once you see the picture differently you can't unsee it all right we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about joe because joe uh he could see the other picture and he couldn't make the leap so maybe we can talk about that next what was keeping joe from uh leaving his job that he hated mixing paint and going to florida and becoming a fisherman this is ellie newman on that got me thinking i'm speaking with johan hari around his latest book lost connections uncovering the real causes of depression and unexpected solutions this is kdpi 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial community radio. We're streaming live at kdpifm.org. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman, and that got me thinking, and I'm speaking with Johan Hari. And so let's talk about Joe, um, <laughs> because he comes in at the beginning of the book and, and the end of the book, and I think... I think you've changed, um, and you've certainly your story has changed by the time we talk about Joe again. Um, so maybe you could just fill the audience in, and it was connected with the, the I thought the Gallup poll as well, and the number yeah. of people who are numbing themselves to uh, to get through the day. So Joe was someone who contacted me actually after he'd seen a TED talk I gave called um, "Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong." And he was in Philly and I was, I, by coincidence, I was going to be in Philly. So I met up with him and Joe really helped me to understand something. So Joe worked in a paint store and his job is um, if you come in and you order a particular shade, he has to put the paint in a kind of shaking machine to get the consistency, to make sure the paint is consistent, doesn't have lumps in it. And his whole life is this single repetitive thing. And Joe was really depressed by the time I met him, he'd actually had a period where he was taking a lot of oxy, Oxycontin to kind of numb himself, to get through the, the kind of what he regarded as the boredom and the, the pain of, of this. And Joe was, he was an interesting guy because he was very uh, ashamed to tell me about how depressed he was. He, every time he told me he was, you know, he felt bad about his job, he would stress, but there's people who don't have jobs, you know, this, uh, this is, this is paid. Okay. You know, he, he felt very guilty for saying this. And so, of course, I related this to all of the things I had learned about meaningless work. And, of course, it was that Joe had no control over his work and no autonomy. And he was quite articulate about that. But there was a weird thing about Joe that Joe um, Joe didn't have kids. He wasn't tied down. He was still quite young. I think when I met him, he was in his late 20s. And the thing Joe loved was fishing. Uh, he, I think he'd fished in, I can't remember how many. Uh, and that's huge, right? Because he knew what he loved. Like that struck me. It wasn't like some people are maybe stuck in something and they don't, they can't or have never imagined anything better or don't believe that there could be something better. Joe had his something better. 
Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think, and so it was very, and the, the thing in particular he wanted to do was actually go to a place where he had been. It was a place in Florida where, and he said, I could be a fishing teacher there. I could teach fishing there and I would just love it. And I would earn far less than I do now, but I would look forward every morning. And so I'm sitting there with him and I remember this so vividly. And I just said, right, Joe, go, go to Florida, right? You can go. You know, he had, he, you know, he could save up a little bit of money, he could go to Florida. And I could see how his heart soared when I said that. And I could also see he wasn't going to do it. And the last time I saw him, I felt like such an idiot because he kind of walked off and I just yelled after him, go to Florida. <laughs> and and I kept thinking, well, why is Joe not going to go to Florida? Because there's so likely not going to go. And there's so many people I know like that who actually could make a leap that would improve their lives and for some reason don't. And I only really began to understand it when I when I, I, I met this fascinating professor called Tim Kasser, who's done this really interesting research. And the best analogy I can think of to sum it up is we all know that junk food has kind of hijacked our diets and is making us sick, right? Make us physically sick. I, I lived on fried chicken for 10 years, so believe me, I know that very well. In something similar has happened to our values. Just like junk food looks like food, but doesn't give us any nutrition, there's a kind of junk values that have hijacked our minds and that don't and that look like values, just like junk food looks like food, but it doesn't give us what we need in life. And for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to be miserable. But actually, weirdly, nobody had actually scientifically investigated it until this incredible professor I got to know, Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Illinois, Illinois State University. And so about a bit more than 25 years ago now, Tim began to look at this question scientifically. So he knew that there are basically, to put it crudely, there are two kinds of motivations that human beings can have. They're called intrinsic and extrinsic value. So if you imagine you play the piano. If you play the piano because you love it, because you get a sense of joy out of it, or because you love doing it with your son or your mother, or for some reason like that, that's an intrinsic reason to do it. You're not doing it because you want to get something else out of it. You're just doing it for the thing in itself. If, however, you imagine if you play the piano in order to impress someone so they'll sleep with you or, you know, in a dive bar that you don't like to pay the rent. That would be an extrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it for the thing in itself. You're doing it in order to get something else out of it. You're doing it at one remove. And what Tim discovered is that the more you are driven in life by extrinsic values, the more you do things not for the thing in themselves, but to get something out of them, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by a really quite significant amount. And what he found is you can, you can actually measure if someone achieves an intrinsic goal like I don't know, I want to be a better son to my mother. Uh, I want to write a good book, whatever. Everyone will be able to fill in their own intrinsic value there. You, you become significantly happier. If you achieve an extrinsic value, however, like I want a promotion just because I want to look better or I want my book to be a bestseller just because I, I want more money or whatever, you do not get any increase in happiness. But what we have as a culture is we've become more and more driven by extrinsic values. There's a really interesting study, um, a tiny little study that I think makes sense immediately, but and made me think about Joe, which is, uh, it was a study, it was, this wasn't done by Tim, this was done by someone else, but in 1978, get a bunch of five-year-olds and you divide them into two groups. The first group is shown two advertisements for a specific toy, and the second group is shown no advertisements. At the end of that, you give all the kids a choice. They say, right now you can either play with a really nice boy who doesn't have the toy that's been in the advert, or you can play with a boy who isn't nice, but who's got the toy. And what happens is the kids who've seen the ad choose to play with the boy who isn't nice, who's got the toy. And the kids who haven't seen the ad choose to play with the nice boy. So what, what happens is those kids are primed to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of a meaningful human connection. Now that is what our culture is making us do the whole time we are being constantly told that what matters is. So Joe said this to me when I said, why aren't you going to go to Florida? He said, well, maybe if I get this car and maybe if I've got two cars in the garage and maybe if I've got the big house, maybe then I'll be happy. And it's just exactly that's what our culture has primed him to do, just like those kids in that sandpit. Right. And at some level, Joe knew, no, that's 
that's not gonna that's not gonna make me feel better but all the messages from the culture are think about the fact that i don't mean this as a glib point think about the fact that you know the most powerful man in the world is donald trump and he was democratically elected what that means about the distortion of values that has taken place this man who's so unhappy uh, you can live in a golden tower you can be the most powerful man in the world you can be married to incredibly beautiful women and uh, if it's all to fill a kind of inner emptiness if there's no intrinsic value to it you're going to feel absolutely terrible as donald trump manifestly does and so i think and i don't mean that as a partisan point uh, you know at all um so so when i was yelling to joe joe go to florida I was yelling into a hurricane of messages going the other way, which is saying, no, the way you make yourself feel better is to spend. It's to buy things. It's to buy shiny consumer goods. And if you try to opt out of that, you're going to be a fool. You're going to be a dupe. You're going to be a loser. All of those things. So as Tim Casser says, the scientist has done so much research in this, our whole culture seems to be geared towards making us miss the things that are really important in life. And that's where where it gets tricky, because you say we are being propagandized to live in a way that doesn't meet our most basic needs. But if you grew up, which we all have in what you say, that hurricane of junk values, and then maybe you didn't have people around you that told you anything else, and maybe even you had people around you that didn't take care of you in the way that was maybe supportive and unloving or didn't do a great job, then you've got this issue of, of a lack of trust in your own instincts, your own heart, your own self-worth, your own um, being good enough. And on top of that, all of this shame around that. Um, and so there's lies the tricky part, right? So how does Joe say, you know what, I deserve to go to Florida, I deserve to be happy, I can trust my sense that it's the right thing for me. And I think you, that was a, another of the mysteries that that you've worked to solve. Uh, yeah, you are such good questions. I think that you're totally right. That, that So I didn't want to tell stories about how our culture is broken and can't be fixed i wanted to find solutions and so the book ends with um the last third of the book really is these different kinds of antidepressant uh, for which there's pretty good evidence and one of the things that really interested me is these intrinsic values these insights are just below the surface all the time you don't have to you know everything i just said there's not going to be many listeners who are sitting there go it's not like explaining quantum physics right there's not which i certainly couldn't do <laughs> but it, it, it's not it's not like you're going to have many listeners who are sitting there thinking I don't know what the hell this guy's talking about, right? These insights are just below the surface. Pretty much everyone has them. We, we all know at some level that you will not lie on your deathbed thinking about all the times you went shopping, right? You will lie on your deathbed thinking about moments of deep connection and meaning. And so I wanted to find out how can we reconnect with, with that sense and, and, and claim that as a, you know, and, and, and is there evidence that would be a real antidepressant? And there's a fascinating guy um, called Nathan Dungan who worked with this professor I've just been talking about, Tim Kasser. What he did is he got to, he was actually a financial advisor and uh, when he started doing this work. And, and what he found is loads of schools were just saying to him, you know, we've got these kids, and these were not like kids in Beverly Hills, right? These are not rich kids who just would be terribly distressed if they didn't have like the latest designer you know, sneakers or, or whatever it was. And Tim realized kind of going there and talking to them about budgeting was kind of missing the point, right? Which was his job was to talk about budgeting. You had to figure out why kids wanted that. Cause as far as Nathan could see, there was no difference between the, you know, the sneaker with the Nike swoosh on it and the sneaker that didn't have it. So he's like, well, what's going on here? So what he did is he organized these groups of teenagers and their parents who would meet every, I think it was every couple of weeks for three months for a few hours. And initially what they would do is they would talk about, well, when you say you want this thing, what is it you actually would get out of having it? So when, and I remember this as a kid from wanting, craving these trainers, Nike trainers, I could not have been further away as a child from being Michael Jordan, right? I was, <laughs> most I was ever going to do was run to McDonald's. <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, um, and yeah, I really crave these things. And, 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 and what Nathan found is when you spoke to teenagers about this and their parents, and you did it in a non-judgmental way, what actually they were looking for was a sense of acceptance it was a sense of status it was a sense that they belonged to a group and that people valued them which obviously once you realize that and once you're in a space where you can talk about that you can start to think well is there some other way i could get that and what this became was kind of a group that was all about how can we connect with what we really think is meaningful 
And how can we try to change our lives so we connect with what was meaningful? It was like a kind of 12 steps program for consumerism, right? If we think about these extrinsic values, this whole way of living is like KFC for the soul. How do we move towards a healthier diet based on meaningful principles? And what Tim found, this was studied scientifically, uh, Nathan and Tim then studied this program scientifically. And what they found is just by meeting a couple, you know, once every couple of weeks and talking and thinking about these things, people really significantly reduced the amount that they were driven by extrinsic values. They really did reconnect with these intrinsic values. There was a quite scientific, uh, you know, statistically significant shift. So these things are just below the surface. It's very hard to do it on your own, but it can be done as groups. And I can talk about, um, you know, that desire to reconnect, which is the key out of depression, to reconnect with what's meaningful, to reconnect with each other, is just below the surface. So let's give you another example of a really interesting program. Well, and before uh, you do, Jan, I just want to set out some of the statistics that you, you laid out in the book about us being one of the loneliest societies that has ever been in history. And the, the evidence that showed that being lonely seemed to cause as much stress as being punched by a stranger, that you're three times more likely to catch a cold, that all diseases become more fatal when you're alone, that being alone has the same effects as being obese. And there's many, many more. So so when you grab the book, everyone, um, you got to look at all of the things that are actually caused by being lonely and then begin to understand how we've become such a, a lonely society. One of the most heartbreaking studies I looked at is it's a very simple study. It just asks people, Americans, how many close friends do you have or you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it ages ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. So there are more people in the United States who have nobody they feel they could turn to if things went wrong than any other answer. And this is really contrary to human nature. The reason why you and I are having this conversation, the reason why anyone is able to listen to it, it's because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa banded together into tight hunter-gatherer tribes. If they had not done that, we, our species would not exist because we were not bigger and stronger than the things we ate most of the time. What we were was better at cooperating. So every impulse we have, every evolved instinct we have is to live in a tribe. In the circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, even for a short period, you would be terribly anxious and depressed for a very good reason. You were about to be eaten, right? So these are the instincts we've evolved with. And yet we are just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And yet we are the first uh, humans ever to try to live. Imagine that we can live alone. And you can't do that as a human being. It's profoundly stressful. It it, it it destroys you. And so one of the really interesting, and there's loads of evidence that loneliness is higher than it's ever been, and that loneliness causes depression and anxiety for all the obvious reasons. And um, one of the things that most moved me was just, again, seeing just kind of simple solutions to this. So, for example, there's a doctor's surgery in East London called the Bromley by Bow Centre, where a doctor, their wonderful man called Dr. Sam Everington, just had patient after patient coming to him who clearly had a problem in their lives rather than just a problem in their brain. And it was his job to tell them you've got a chemical imbalance and just drug them. And it's not that he's against chemical antidepressants. He's not. He does prescribe them. He just thought this is just a woefully inadequate response to what we're seeing. So he pioneered this different approach. It's called social prescribing. <laughs> so if you if you go to his surgery, I'll give you an example of a woman called Lisa Cunningham, who I got to know. Lisa had been shut away in her home with really severe depression for seven years. And she went to Sam... And Sam said, look, I'll carry on giving you these chemical antidepressants if you want, but I'm also going to prescribe you to take part in a group. And he gave her a big range of choices, but the group she chose was there was a patch of land um, behind the doctor's surgery. It was just kind of scrub land, very run down. Dogs would go a mess in it. And what he did is they said to a group of depressed and anxious people, will you guys just meet a couple of times a week and together will you just turn this scrub land into something beautiful? And so what happened is they got together. At first, they were very anxious and awkward. And they all learned gardening together. And they experimented. They tried planting different things. Some things grew. Some things didn't. They, they, they like read a lot about gardening online and in books. And it was funny because they could meet in a place where there wasn't any pressure to talk about the depression or anxiety. They could talk about something else. And they, and they could reconnect with the land, with other people. And the way Lisa and some of the other people who took part in the group explain it is as this garden began to block, garden began to blossom, they began to blossom. They began to rediscover and reconnect with 
things that are meaningful, even if it's something as simple as a relationship with a piece of garden. And there was a study in Norway of a similar program that found it was twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. You know, as um, Michael Marmot, who, who is one of the people scientists who monitored that program said, people come to them with a problem in living and what they offer them is a solution to the problem in their life, which is the key to, uh, to, to dealing with depression and anxiety. But one of the tragedies of the story I was told, and so many of your listeners will have been told that this is just a problem in your brain, is it, it actually cuts you off from that. It seals you away in this serotonin story where actually you think there's something really wrong with your body, uh, which is not true. And also you think, you know, what can you do with that, right? especially since the drugs don't work for most people, it cuts you off from finding the actual sources of depression and anxiety in your life and solve and, and, and being helped to find a solution. And of course, it shouldn't be left to the individual to find a solution. It's something we need. To, a lot of these things, when I talk about the seven real antidepressants, some of them are things people can do as individuals, but a lot of them are things we have to do collectively. And we all understand that with most problems, right? You, we, don't, we don't say the solution to car crashes should only be you know, we don't go to the emergency room and say to someone who's just been mauled in a car crash, well, it's your job now to, you know, impose speed limits and install airbags, right? We know it's the job of everyone to do these things. And these things that are making some people depressed and anxious are making a lot, most people, I would say, unhappy or more more unhappy than they should be. That You know, so actually the, the finding these solutions to depression and anxiety don't just help the people who kind of, you know, been pushed to the edge of depression and anxiety. It also helps the vast majority of people to have better lives. And we're asking the scientific community here to make a pretty big shift. If we look back to the 1960s, you tell a story about immigrants in Australia, and it says this community really believed it wasn't possible for psychological distress to cause illness. And we jump forward now where there's much more acceptance of it, but you talk about us, uh, Dr. Onda and work with obesity. And the doctor says it's time to stop asking what's wrong with them and start asking what happened to them. And this is a huge shift that the medical community, although the results are obviously successful, it was sort of, the community was sort of surprised and shocked. Um, you know, scientists and the CDC and um, psychologists and doctors, it was like, you said all of these things are sort of just under the surface. And when we bring them up, they seem obvious. And yet, somehow, the establishment is still shocked. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the shifts in, in the attitudes towards obesity and the connection with that to depression. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. And I think the, the yeah, I'll talk about that first. The, this, this I found challenging. Uh, and, and to be honest, I found some of the most painful research I did. So uh, for reasons that I'll explain. So there's all this research about how childhood trauma um, relates very strongly to um, depression and anxiety in adults. And, and it was discovered by this incredible doctor I got to know called Dr. Vincent Felitti in this slightly strange way. It might, it'll sound like I'm talking about a whole other subject if I explain when I start, but trust me, to <laughs> listen, I'll get there. So in the 1980s, uh, mid-80s, he was commissioned by a not-for-profit medical provider, Kaiser Permanente, to deal with it. They, they just realized that they had this massively increasing problem with obesity. Um, and it was a huge driver of their costs and they, and nothing they were trying was working. So they basically said to Vincent, look, we're going to give you a load of money. Just do blue skies research to figure out what would solve this. So Vincent went away and he just, initially he just, um, starts interviewing people who were really very severely obese. I mean, people who weighed 400 pounds or more who'd been through every kind of problem. And, and, and one day he had this stupidly simple idea. He just said, what would happen if we just, they just stopped eating and we just gave them nutritional support you know would they in fact just lose loads of weight so he started this as a trial and it turns out it does in fact work right if you take someone who's very very obese they'll live off the fat supplies in their body provided you give them support so they don't get scurvy and things like that they will in fact lose a lot of weight until they're down to a healthy weight and people were thrilled because these people who've been really ill um in fact were going down to normal weights but then something happened that no one expected what would happen is and it often happened with the people who lost the most weight, they would just one day absolutely freak out and they would rush off to KFC or somewhere and they would just gorge themselves and very rapidly put on weight again. 
so Vincent started to interview the people who this happened to to kind of figure out well, and he's a very warm kind man he wasn't standing over them he, he wanted to really understand what was going on and he kind of there's a woman who asked me to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality and he said to Susan tell me what happened before this kind of relapse where you went off and, and started to gorge and saying it happened to her that hadn't happened to her in many many years a man had hit on her obviously when she was very obese um no one had done that and she got down to a healthier weight and a man had hit on her and she was absolutely freaked out and then vincent started to ask her about when she'd begun to put on weight it was actually when she was 11 and he said well why when you were 11 and not when you were like nine or when you were 14 did anything happen when you were 11 and she said well that was when my grandfather started to rape me and this is when vincent began to do began to ask lots of these people and what he discovered is an extremely large proportion of the very obese people, in fact, 55% of them, describe being sexually abused as children, which is obviously way higher than the general population. And he began to think, well, what's going on here? One woman said to him, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be. And what he began to realise is this thing that we see as a pathology, this kind of overeating, in fact, made sense to the individual. It was a way of protecting themselves from what they saw as threats from, from men. The, the way he put it is like we've been focusing on the smoke without seeing the fire. And this is when Vincent decided to do this deeper research to see if there was a relationship with uh, other problems. So what he did is everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for any kind of medical help in San Diego for a year was just given a questionnaire. Didn't matter whether you came in for a cold or schizophrenia, anything. And you were just asked about 10 bad things. Did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Ranging from, you know, sexual abuse, uh, death of a parent, that kind of thing. And then you were asked, have you had any of these 10 problems as an adult? Things like obesity, addiction, and one of them was depression. They wanted to see what the matchup was. And this was funded by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And when the results came in, people just literally could not believe it, the scientists. So for every um, category of childhood trauma that happened to you, you were radically more likely to become depressed. If you had six of the categories, you were five times more likely to become depressed as an adult. And if you had seven of the categories, you were 3,100% more likely to become and to, to have attempted suicide as an adult. So childhood trauma is a really big driver of um, depression. And again, this, this is very challenging. And again, it makes you realize how sick it is to tell people, think about telling that woman who was raped by her grandfather, oh, actually, just a, just a disorder in your brain. You know, no need to ask anything else, just a disorder in your brain. You just need to drug yourself. Or, or you, that she should buck up, right? Or that she's, it's irrational, which are the stories you're being told with depression. I think so. You see, in a way, I think those two stories share something. Right. Until I was a teenager and I went to my doctor, I was told I believed depression was all in my head, meaning it's just, you know, you're, you're imagining it, right? You're just weak. You need to pull yourself together. And then for the next 13 years, I was told it was all in my head in a very different way, that it was just the result of some spontaneous chemical imbalance. But actually, when you learn all this, what you realize is it's not in your head. It's largely in the way we live. Now, there are real biological contributions to depression and anxiety that can make you more sensitive to these factors. And it's important to stress that there are real biological factors. Your genes can make you more susceptible. They can make you about 35 to 40% more susceptible to these factors, but they don't determine it. It's the causes are out here in the world, right, overwhelmingly. And so that leads to a very different way of thinking about it. And it's, you know, again, this is not a marginal, this goes back to what you were asking before. This isn't a marginal view. The World Health Organization says what I'm saying. The United Nations said in their statement for World Health Day in 2017, um, we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about power imbalances. You know, the, 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 they, they said that the, what's called the biomedical model of depression is just wrong. Um, so... The, the, and it's interesting because in one way, none of this is controversial to scientists, right? It's very broad agreement among scientists that there are basically three kinds of cause of depression. There are biological causes like your genes. There are um, psychological causes like childhood trauma. And there are social causes like having you know, loneliness or meaningless work. And the, all of these factors combine together, right? It's not like they're separate silos. They're playing out in every depressed person to some degree or another. Um, and and that's, that's not controversial. What gets lost is, I don't know anyone who went to their doctor and said they were depressed who got told what I just told you, right? 
no, I don't know anyone. I mean, actually, the people in that clinic in East London who 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 are given this very different program are, but they're the only people in the world I could find who were told this. Um, and I do think that's because I think there's several reasons. There's there's an enormous industry by the drug companies that fund this. So, for example, there's very good evidence that just exposure to the natural world is a massive antidepressant. There was a prison in Michigan where um, some of the prisoners looked out over green space and some of the prisoners looked out over concrete. The prisoners who looked out over green space when this was studied were 24% less likely to develop mental health problems. There's loads of evidence like that, but who's going to benefit? No one profits from you going for a walk in the park, right? No one makes any money out of that. So there's no attempt to promote those insights. Um, in fact, they're, they're kind of slightly brushed under the carpet. So I think partly it's... Um, the drug companies and the whole industry around them. But actually, to be fair, I don't think you can blame it entirely on them. I think we live in a culture, and I, you know, and I don't hold myself above this. I felt this way for a very long time. We live in a culture where we're made to think the solution to everything is to go shopping, you know, and that every problem can be solved by the equivalent of swallowing a pill. And I think the kind of individualistic, materialistic culture we've created, the culture that would elect Donald Trump, um, is a culture, and I don't criticise, you know, I don't judge the people who voted for Donald Trump. I don't think we should sneer at them or talk down to them. I think they're, they're trying to live through this crisis like the rest of us. Um, you know, the, a culture like that will believe that the solution must be a pill. And when you're told, oh, actually, the solution's out here in the world, it will seem intuitively wrong because it doesn't fit with the whole way we're taught to think about the world, you know, from the moment we're born. But I do think these insights are I think the one thing you can say is people really feel how deep the crisis is. It's, it's you know, one in five Americans taking a psychiatric drug is, is an extraordinary figure from, you know, little boys being drugged to focus to old people being drugged to not rebel in their disgusting retirement communities where they've been abandoned to middle-aged women drugging themselves to deal with the pain of trying to cope with all the stress and the load that they're, they're trying to carry to men try, drugging themselves because they don't feel they can talk about their feelings. I mean, you look at the sheer range of the, the distress and um, you can see that this is a big crisis. And some of the solutions that I talk about are things we can do as individuals and some of them require bigger changes because we've got a big problem. It seems the combination of the extrinsic and the intrinsic and the internal and the external, and that somehow we've got to come to peace with that, that we need this external system to start supporting us in supporting our own intrinsic sense of, of uh, what's right and um, what's wrong. I think that's true. You know, I don't want to sound too, um, too much like a musical number in hair here, but the, the answer is the, the we are, we know the answers to this right at some intuitive level it's precisely because we have been we've built a system that doesn't accord with our human nature with our innate instincts that we're feeling so out of whack and we're feeling so strange um and and in a way that's that's a good thing because and this is a very difficult thing to say about depression and i resisted this insight for a long time but this is not a pathology. This is a signal we need to listen to. In the same way, look, so one thing that's really, as you can tell, I'm British, although I spend a lot of my time in the US. One thing that's very shocking to British people when we come to the US is the existence of um, indigestion pills, which just don't exist in Europe, right? They don't exist. If you offer indigestion pill to a French person, they'll say, right, but indigestion is a signal from your body that you need to eat more slowly, right? You don't want to get rid of that because then you'll eat too much, you'll make yourself sick, right? That, that, so it's not that indigestion is a good feeling. Indigestion is an absolutely horrible feeling, but it's a necessary feeling. And what I came to realize is that depression and anxiety are something like that. That these are signals that something's gone wrong with us, with our lives and our culture. And you don't want to, even if we could drug it away, which we can't, the drugs don't get rid of this problem for the vast majority of people. But even if we could, we'd be missing something because these are signals that can guide us. In the same way, if you look at people with leprosy, as I understand it, because people with leprosy lose sensation in their fingers and toes and so on, the reason why their fingers fall off is not because the leprosy makes your fingers fall off. It's what happens is if they put their hand on like a burning stove or something, they can't feel that their hand is on a burning stove. They can't feel their injuries, they're, they're numb, and numbness obviously leads to far greater damage because you don't know what's gone wrong. In the same way, 
so that so the signal you feel when you put your hand on a burning stove is a necessary signal as excruciating as it is in the same way depression and anxiety and, and the addiction crisis that's so catastrophic at the moment in the u.s these are necessary signals that our lives are not going as they should and instead of insulting that signal think about the pe- grieving parents who are told you know your baby died yesterday you've got a brain imbalance here's here's some drugs that is a grotesque insult to the grief they feel because as joanne cassiatori told me we grieve because we've loved our grief is a tribute to the person we've loved you know and it's an insult to that love to say that it's a pathology that needs to be you know removed and it's an insult to what it means to be human in the same way it's an insult to what it means to be human. If I think about my teenage self, told by my doctor, oh, you've just got a chemical imbalance, who never said, has anything happened to you? Is there any reason you might be in pain? Are there any needs in your life that aren't being met? And to be honest, I think at that time, I wouldn't have had the vocabulary to talk about it. So, I, you know, and I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been able to, but we need to open up the spaces where we can have these conversations and we can find out what's really gone wrong and not just kind of um, pathologize Perfectly meaning, I have yet to meet a depressed person who, if you talk to them about their life, there isn't a perfectly understandable reason why they're depressed and anxious. And so sometimes you'll get people who'll say, Well, that's not right. Um, you know, I know this person who has a beautiful wife and a rich, you know, they're rich and all these things, and they've got two cars and they're still depressed. And when I, when I hear that, what it reminds me of is if you read some of these feminist, early feminist texts from the 60s, um, very often what would happen is women would go to their doctor and they would say, doctor, there's something terribly wrong with me. They would have said their nerves at that time. That's how people talked about it. But they would have said, there's something wrong with my nerves because I've got everything a woman could want. I've got a husband who doesn't beat me. I've got a car. I've got two children. We've got a semi-detached house. And yet I still feel terrible. And the doctor would say, yeah, you're right. You're something wrong with your nerves. Here's some Valium. When, now, if we could go back in time, what we would say to those women is, Right. You've got everything you could possibly want by the standards of the culture, but the standards of the culture are just wrong. You need more than a husband who doesn't beat you in a car in a semi-detached house. You need meaning and purpose in your life. You need, you know, you need equality. You need all these things you've been deprived of. And I think a similar thing is happening now. You may well have everything you could possibly want by the standards of our culture. But if you've been told that what you need to have a happy life is a lot of money and a beautiful wife, well, then Donald Trump would be a very happy person. And he's really not. And, you know, and, and we wouldn't be having these crises, you know, as we get richer, we would be having less depression. In fact, you know, we've been, you know, um, that's not the case, right? I mean, it's not, I don't want to act like everyone's becoming rich because actually there has been an increase in financial insecurity for most people. So I don't want to make a simplistic link there. But the, but that uh, we all, you know, it's the intrinsic extrinsic again. We all want different things. We all came here to ex- have different experiences. We might like things that other people don't like. And there's that shift, right? That instead of the outside world telling us what we need to be happy and relying on that, the shift to back inside to what is it that we desire and and are drawn toward yeah well we've become lost in these things which entirely understandably um so i'll give you an example i went to a rehab as a journalist not as a (laughs) not not as a patient i went to the first ever rehab center for internet addicts in the united states it's a fascinating place called restart in in washington state and actually i have to confess that (laughs) when i arrived there it's this clearing in the woods I glanced at my phone and I was immediately irritated that I didn't have a cell phone signal. <laughs> I got to miss the point already. But or you fasc- got the point. <laughs> it was it was fascinating to me because the woman who runs it, a really fascinating woman called Dr. Hillary Cash. Hillary actually happened to be she, she happened to be a psychotherapist with an office near the Microsoft offices in the nineties. So she was at the very first wave of internet addiction. And speaking to the young men, they were all young men at that time in 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 that rehab center it was fascinating to see i think you can see where a lot of our internet addiction where it's coming from and hillary really helped me to understand that so a lot of these young men what they're getting addicted to is um multiplayer video games like world of warcraft and speaking to these young guys what hillary explained to me was what they get out of this sense out of something like world of warcraft is precisely what they are no longer getting from the culture they get a tribe they get a sense of identity. 
they get a sense of status. They, they get a sense of set of rules where they know how to rise and become successful. Um, now, that's not enough for human life. But you can see how the, increasingly, you know, actually this to me, one thing that's fascinating about the Internet is the moment at which it arrives. So a lot of this collapse, this collapse in social connections, this collapse in meaningful values, this collapse in meaningful work had actually happened before the Internet. And then the internet arrives at this moment in the late 90s when it looks a bit like the thing we've lost. It offers us status updates in place of status. It offers, offers us uh, Facebook friends in face of friends, in place of friends. Um, and so to me, like, and, and it's not that I'm against those things. It's just that it doesn't meet those needs, right? To me, the, the best analogy would be to think of it, but, um, you know, the relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between pornography and sex. You know, a uh, really sex-starved person, if you give them some pornography, will get some relief from it. But they're not going to feel, they don't, you don't feel the way you do after you've had sex with someone. You don't feel held and valued and, well, when it goes well anyway, held and valued and, and kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know. You know um, satisfied. Satisfied. Exactly. Satisfied and fulfilled. Uh, and in a similar way, there's this phenomenon which has been well documented, even Facebook admitted it not long before we had this conversation, of Facebook depression, that the longer you spend on Facebook, the more likely you are, the, you, the more depressed you become. Although Facebook said the solution was people should just post more, but post happily, which I thought was hilarious. But then, and you can see why again, because if you're looking at, because again, what Facebook promotes is these extrinsic values. You're, you know, we we display the edited highlights reel of our lives where, you know, you scroll through Facebook and, oh, this person's on holiday in Jamaica and this other person's won an award and this other, and you, and you know, you, you, you think, oh God, I'm not, I've not got any of these things. When of course you know that those, actually think about it, the person in Jamaica is probably miserable and the person posting the award is probably miserable. They're probably, it's probably why they're trying to show off. To it's publication bias, just like the drug companies. Yeah. That's a really good analogy. I never thought of that. You know, there's this um, comedian, Mark Maron, who says, uh, Pretty much 90% of all social media posts could be boiled down to the subtext, will somebody somewhere please acknowledge that I exist? And I think there's there's a lot in that. You know, it's it's a way of trying to solve this deep loneliness that doesn't actually, that doesn't solve it. And um, and there are real solutions. Uh, there that, are real that, solutions, and they're in your book. And I think maybe we'll end with that. This is Ellie Newman, and I've been speaking to Johan Hari, and we've been talking about his recent book, uh, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and Unexpected Solutions. And they are both unearthed, the causes and the, the unexpected solutions, and available to everyone. And so, Johan, when does the book come out, and where will people be able to get it? Uh, it comes out, uh, I think, on the 20th of January in the United States. It's available in all good bookstores. Um and people who want any more information can go to www.thelostconnections.com where you can take a quiz to see how much you know about the root causes of depression and anxiety. You can um, uh, you can listen to interviews with lots of the people we've audio of lots of the people we've talked about. Uh, you can also get the book as an audio book from audible.com. Um, and uh, <laughs> you know, I had a funny experience recently where the host at the end said, "You know, will you list your Facebook?" And I was like, "Yeah, the book's got a Facebook page." It's, uh, facebook.com slash the lost connections and I gave my Twitter and then she said uh, do you have um, snapchat and I said I am a 38 year old man <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I will go a long way to promote my books but no any 38 year old man on snapchat you should be very suspicious of but um, but yeah so people can go there to, to find out more details and I just want to say this book has been praised from everyone from um, Bill Mayer, Elton John, uh, scientists, authors, um, and and rightly so. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. That was brilliant. I loved how much you engaged with it. And that was such smart questions. You give me lots to think about. Oh, good. Well, as did you. Happy New Year. Happy Cheers. New Year to you too. Bye. Bye-bye.